0: Just give us one hour, and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice, and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers-Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen
1: good afternoon and good evening wherever you are welcome to harvesting happiness talk radio where we explore the very serious business of happiness sustainable well-being and human flourishing we are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face no 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 we're talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity And this show is most definitely all about the heart. If you like what you're listening to, connect with me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen and HH Talk Radio. You can tweet at us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. We are talking about freedom. We are talking about independence. We are talking about our contemporary legal and criminal injustice system if you will, today with one of our guests, Adam Ben Ferrado. He's an associate professor of law at Drexel University, a graduate of Yale College and Harvard Law School. He served as a federal appellate law clerk and an attorney at Jenner and Block. He has published numerous scholarly articles and his op-eds and essays have appeared in a variety of publications including the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and Legal Times. He lives in Philadelphia with his wife and daughter, and his new book, Unfair, uh, Crusading Legal Scholar Adam Benferrato exposes the powerful psychological forces that undermine our criminal justice system and affect us all. And this book has just come out, and we are so excited to speak with him. Good morning, Adam.
2: Hey,
3: good morning. It's wonderful to be here.
1: It's wonderful to have you, because this this is really uh, a very timely topic, and I know we are airing this show for the first time around July 4th, the United States Independence Day, and really um, as a testimony and celebration of the freedom and justice that we hope we can achieve for all, but is not always the case.
3: Yeah, I think, I, I think the timing uh, of the show is, is quite fortuitous um, because it's a reminder, I think, of uh, what the founders had in mind, which was a country, I think, that was always striving uh, perfection, realizing that uh, it wasn't possible to ever quite reach that plateau, but knowing that, that part of what it is to be an American is always to be uh, searching, looking for ways to, to reach a higher plane
1: Let's talk about um, really what what, what you're sharing in the book, because you talk about the labels we give victims and how it can make a difference in their cases, um, handled not only by police, but also judges, lawyers, jurors.
3: Yeah, so that's where I start the book. So so the focus is really on the hidden forces that shape the behavior of uh, detectives and uh, judges and jurors and witnesses. And in each chapter, I look at the conventional stories about how these people make decisions and where things can go wrong. And then I contrast that with the, with what the latest evidence from psychology and neuroscience have to say. So when it comes to the victim, I think the conventional story that you hear if you turn on the television and listen to a prosecutor is that all victims are the same. It doesn't matter um, what, what color the person's skin uh, happens to be it doesn't matter what neighborhood the person happens to live in um, it doesn't matter whether the person is rich or poor um, but the evidence that we have both uh, in terms of uh, data from the criminal justice system and psychological experiments is that that that's not true and so in the book, I start with this very interesting case involving um, uh, a man who's found on his back in a in a wealthy neighborhood in d c and um, he's unable to speak. Uh, He's sort of moaning, and the person who finds him um, thinks maybe he's had a stroke, but as soon as the fire engines pull up, the man starts to vomit, and one of the firefighters immediately says, well, um, I smell alcohol, this is a drunk. And so when the police arrive, they say, well, this is just a drunk, we're gonna leave him, Um, not do any of the normal um, tests that we do, not going to treat this as a crime scene. He's put in the ambulance, which decides, the drivers decide not to go to the closest hospital, as protocol would require, but to a hospital that's a little bit closer for them to run some errands. And when he gets to the hospital, he's put into the hallway just to sleep things off. And this whole case changes when a nurse notices him demonstrating the symptoms, not of a drunk, but of someone with a head injury. And they rush him into surgery, turns out, um, he's received a blow to the head. Uh, and it's only a coincidence, uh, that they later find out that this man suffered actually not from, uh, the effects of alcohol, but rather from a violent crime. He was robbed, in the head, and he eventually died. And it turns out that this was no, um, uh, vagrant, no drunk. This was a New York Times award-winning reporter who just stepped out for a stroll in his neighborhood. And I think what this Uh, uh, case shows is how quickly we sum people up uh, based on uh, really irrelevant details, the color of their skin, um, what they're wearing, the the smell on their breath, and how that critical uh, decision um, uh, can affect the whole outcome of a case. It can determine whether something gets investigated as a crime at all. It can decide whether uh, someone lives or dies. Um, and so one of the things I'm interested in this book is, in looking at is those quick decision processes, how um, the things that we don't even think about at all many times, it's automatic um, uh, summations of people, end up shaping how we treat them um, and can really lead to terrible injustice.
1: Well, and this is where the psychological forces come in because what I, when I'm hear you, hearing you say is that we have these cognitive distortions or this fuzzy logic that lead us to make decisions or um, uh, think that we know the truth when it is not really the truth at all. It, it is the mind at work and it's not based on fact.
3: Absolutely. And I think one of the, the real messages um, of this book is that um, there's a whole lot going on inside our heads that we're not aware of. Um, and uh, so it's, it's an upsetting thing sometimes to think about. But people who believe themselves, for instance, to be free from bias can act in ways that are terribly biased um, so there's been a lot of research um, uh, done which I think has a has an interesting um, uh, it offers some interesting insights about recent police violence, for example so I think the conventional story that we have is there are sort of two types of uh, uh police officers there are uh, sort of the good ones and the the, the bad ones um and that there these bad ones uh, may be racist or Um, uh, explicit bigots. And I think what the science says is that uh, all of us, including police officers, are subject to unconscious biases uh, against many people, including racial minorities, and even a police officer who believes that he uh, treats everyone the same when it comes to a split-second decision whether to draw a gun or not, may exhibit shooter bias against African-Americans.
0: Mm.
1: Well, and, you know, as you're speaking of the moment of drawing the gun, is it that there is shooter bias or is it just the, uh, the kill or be killed, the fight or flight response that kicks in that has is based on none of that? It's just f- the fear factor. Adrenaline is coursing through the body. You know you need to react quickly. What are you going to do?
3: So I think it's both of those things. I mean, I think one of the things we know is that, Being a police officer is an incredibly difficult thing to do, because I've actually gone on, uh, in writing the book, uh, a few ride-alongs with police officers, and it really is an incredibly difficult job. You've got to make very quick decisions based on very little information. You go and knock on a door, and you've got to decide, you know, it's a domestic violence call. You've got to decide, have things settled down? Do I need to go in? Is this going to escalate things? And oftentimes, um, police officers, when you're making decisions in a very short time frame, you've got to rely on quick decision processes, which are stereotypes and other automatic um, processes. So the research we have on shooter bias, and there's been a number of studies, show that in simulations, um, uh, people make more mistakes um, when they are presented with uh, an unarmed uh, black person and an armed white person. So they're more likely um, to mistakenly shoot an unarmed uh, black person than an unarmed uh, white person. And that's, that's a real problem.
1: It is a real problem and one that we are seeing with unfortunate regularity in the news.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. And I I feel like this story, though, isn't getting out in the mainstream media, unfortunately. I think those on the, the right are very quick to say, Um, that, you know, we are post-racial and um, these are just a few bad apples um, who should be dealt with harshly. And I think those on the left um, are sticking with what what I think of as uh, as an outdated model of uh, racial behavior, which is the one that was certainly true um, in the early part of the 20th century, which is that police departments are filled with explicit racists who hate black people. I don't think either of those stories uh, is right. I think, we do have um, racially disparate impacts throughout the criminal justice system. If you look, uh, blacks have higher bails. They are more likely to be arrested. They're more likely to experience uh, police violence. They're more likely to get the death penalty. Uh, But I think the cause of that are implicit processes, unconscious processes, rather than explicit racism in large part.
1: Mm. Fascinating. We are going to be going to a break, and when we return, we're going to carry on the conversation with Adam Benferrato. And to learn more about his book, Unfair, which has been published by Crown Books, you can visit www.adambenferrato.com. And let me spell that for you. Benferrato is B-E-N-F-O-R-A-D-O. And on Facebook, the page is Benferrato. And on Twitter, that handle is at Ben. Here comes the tunes. We will be right back.
0: Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on T-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more please visit our online boutique at
2: www.harvestinghappiness.com.
4: Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa cypress Cayman has made her 1st ebook. Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com. Love is in the air, In the whisper of the
2: tree Love is in the air And the
1: thunder Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about and celebrating freedom and independence. But from a little bit of a different perspective today, we're talking about criminal injustice. And in the studio with me today is Adam Benferrato. He's an associate professor of law at Drexel University. He's also the author of Unfair, which has just been published by Crown So, Adam, prior to the break, we were talking about um, the criminal justice system. We were talking about the book, some interesting uh, stories that you've shared. But I want to turn the focus now to um, the adversarial nature of our system, that instead of uh, preventing injustice, it actually creates it.
3: Yeah, this is something that in in doing research uh, for this book, and certainly in my broader research uh, as a professor, um, I've I've been interested for a long time, um, because as a law student um, and as a professor, um, it's it's so uh, indoctrinated for all of us that uh, our system, uh, broadly speaking, ought to be adversarial. That that's how you get to the truth, right? One lawyer battles for the defense, one lawyer uh, battles for uh, the prosecution. Um, And this model actually transfers to how police officers interact with the community, it transfers to how uh, the prison guards treat prisoners. Um, And as I did more research into human psychology, I started to realize that this model is fundamentally flawed. Um, in rather than actually treating um, uh, the the causes of unfairness, it, it creates unfairness. Um, and so, if you look at, for instance, um, interactions between um, community members and the police, when the police treat uh, the people that they are policing um, uh, with distrust um, and disrespect that leads uh, to failing to close cases. There's really good research on the fact that when people comply with the law and when people even come forward with evidence for the police, that is only when they believe that the law and the legal actors are legitimate. When they don't trust the police, when they feel that the police um, single them out, Um, and disrespect them, they don't come forward and say, yeah, this is what I saw last Saturday night. They sit back. And they're less likely, and this is one of the most interesting findings, they're less likely to follow the law in the first place. So I think that's one area where we really need to work on the adversarial system. But I think it also transfers to lawyers. If you look at the origins of dishonesty with respect to prosecutors, for example, not turning over exculpatory evidence that shows that uh, a particular defendant is, is innocent, as they are required to do under the Constitution, why does that happen? Well, I think a large part of it has to do with how we define the roles of the prosecutor and the defense. When you think about your job as getting a conviction, if that's your role, you're a lot more likely to bend the rules and and still feel good about yourself. And so one of the changes that I think is necessary for prosecutors is to start thinking um, about the role of the prosecutor as achieving justice not getting as many convictions but achieving justice as a prosecutor you ought to be thinking about the fact that i want all innocent people to go free if i send one innocent man or woman to prison that is a terrible failure on the other side i think uh defendants, and, and, and um, I think the people who represent them, need to think about their goal as achieving justice also, which is not getting off guilty people. It's ensuring that guilty people are treated fairly. Now, that's a fundamental realignment of how we think about lawyers' roles, but I think it would resolve a lot of the injustice that we see and prevent a lot of the wrongful convictions that we've uh, co- have come to light in the last decade or so.
1: You make a very good point because we are tied – the legal system is tied to winning or losing, to, you know, to guilty or, or innocent, or, or actually not even guilty or innocent. It's about, it's about the case itself, winning or losing the case, and it's my understanding from having a lot of friends who are lawyers. Some of them are very high-powered litigators, and they say, you know what? It, it comes down to not being about the truth but about the movie, the portrayal that you are able to build for the case.
3: Yeah, it's really unfortunate. I mean, I think one thing that, that we know from the psychology is that what makes for good dramatic television, the lawyers battling out you know, with a lot of uh, fancy uh, rhetoric and um, you know, waving arms, that makes for bad justice. We need, we need a system that's focused on getting to the truth. And getting to the truth does not require battling it out. I think that that's uh, a a real mistake. I think that um, getting to the truth, um, and I think the way for us to do it, um, is definitely moving towards more of a, a medical model, a public health model of crime in which we're all in this together, right? I think that's something that's often lost. When criminals commit crimes, that's a loss for them. When victims are subject to crimes, that's a loss for them. When the criminal justice system, right, has you know fifty percent of people uh, committing new crimes after they get out of uh, prison, that's a loss for them. We need to find ways that we can all work together, and I think that's a public health model.
1: It, it certainly is a holistic model, and I'm thinking about you teaching, you know, young lawyers in training. This uh, new bedside manner or courtside manner as a way of being in the world, which can affect change. If this is what you're teaching, then we uh, will be changed. One
3: of the reasons. It, it It is. Yeah, I mean, that really for me was one of the reasons that uh, I wanted to become a professor was I wanted um, to push my students to see the world in a different way and also to go out into the world and affect change. My students, when they come in, I teach uh, criminal law, which is a first-year course. Um, they're often very worried to point to problems in judicial opinions and say, this judge made a mistake or this lawyer didn't do the ethical thing because they think if it's in a case book, it must be right. This must be the right way. And so one of my biggest jobs is to convince them, no, you know, develop your own moral compass. Look at the evidence. Um, the fact that it has been done some way for a hundred years doesn't mean that that's the right way to do it.
1: Mm, agreed. And what about the system, the existing system that we have is based on the fact that people are rational operators guided by reason that's flawed. I mean, it's it's a flawed system.
3: That That's another thing that's hard to wrap your head around. Um, but I think that that's, it, it actually makes sense when you think about it. How has our legal system developed? Well, over hundreds, if not thousands of years, we didn't have any tools to figure out the truth about human behavior. So we did the best that we could and we built our legal system, our institutions around assumptions about how uh, memory works, um, what causes people to commit crimes, how we deter uh, individuals from offending. Um, And it turns out now that we look at the evidence, a lot of that stuff is wrong. And so, you know, when I was in law school, I was taught, well, it's the letter of the law um, that determines uh, outcomes of cases, um, it's uh, judges being objective, um, setting aside their biases. And the research shows that that's oftentimes just not possible. So one of my favorite studies that I talk about in the book is about uh, the decision whether to grant someone parole. So I teach my students, well, the things that would be most important would be you know, how serious a crime the person committed and how they did in prison. Did they reform themselves? Did they get into fights? Well, when researchers in Israel looked at this, what they found was the thing that predicted the outcome, whether someone was granted parole, was the time of day when the person came before the judge. If you came first thing in the morning, you had a quite good chance of getting parole. If you came right before the first break, you had a very, very low chance of getting role. So that's a perfect example of where we assume this level of rationality that just doesn't exist. I think real judges need to acknowledge and understand these forces that are operating beyond their awareness or control.
1: I'm sitting here, my mouth just dropped open when (laughs) you shared that. I'm like, wow, wow. And that has nothing to do with
3: the case. Absolutely, and that's that's one of the things. You know, I've been studying this for a long time. I do my own research um, in, in uh, cohorts with uh, psychologists, and it's just shocking. The more we understand, um, the more we realize all of the things that are shaping um, our decisions that we never had any idea about.
1: Oh my. In the book, you have some truly jaw-dropping real-life cases that bring this science to life. And you shared one during the break that I would love for you to share with our listeners.
3: Yeah, so I think the the story um, that really jumped uh out the most when I was doing my research was actually an image I cro- came across, and it's a, it's a lineup photo from uh, Meriwether County, Georgia, from 1979. And the thing that's amazing about this photograph um, is that it captures this moment um, that begins a nightmare for this man. He is standing in the middle. The victim of a brutal rape comes in and IDs him, um, and he spends you know the next two decades of his life. Um, Locked up for a crime he didn't commit. Now, the thing that is really shocking about this photograph is not the wrongful conviction. I came across many cases that were similar in that respect. What's really shocking is that right next to this man, two people over, is the actual perpetrator. He just happened to be locked up in the prison, and the jail rather, on an unrelated offense. And he was just pulled in at the last moment to stand in to this five-man lineup. And the victim looked at the person who had committed this atrocity and picked out a guy standing next to him. And to me, that just shows the vulnerability that we Face 77,000 people uh, by our uh, best estimate um, are charged after eyewitness identify, uh, eyewitnesses identify them. But we know that one third of the time, eyewitnesses pick out an innocent person. That cannot stand if we are to have a just legal system.
1: No, it can't. And that is uh, a, a astounding. And it makes one think, you know, we, 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 we tend to believe what we think, what we see, what we hear and what we feel. And what I'm hearing you say is that in this case, it, it can't always be that there have to be other mechanisms to prove justice or injustice.
3: Absolutely. And I think a big part of it is about um, being humble. It's about humility and realizing that we aren't the perfect people um, uh, that we want to be. In fact, acknowledging that you're not perfect is a way to become a a more perfect person. I mean, I think that's that is 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 the truth.
1: And the way to embrace change, certainly, you know how Absolutely. you re- are relating to your law students. Um, I, I think is incredible. It, it gives hope to the, to, to the legal system that we're going to have the next generation of lawyers that are going to be more empathic, more holistic in their approaches to sussing out the truth.
3: I think that that 's true, and I think we need to look at foreign models um, you know I think a lot of other countries, if you look at Northern Europe, for instance, I think empathy is built into their legal structures. we build in brutality, we build in hate um, that 's not the way to reduce crime um I you know emailed with a prison warden in Norway, and he mentioned something along the lines of um you know in in, in a separate interview um That the way forward, if you create a monstrous prison, you are going to produce monsters. Why would you ever want to do that? In the United States, we go that route. And if we brought more empathy into our structures, I think we would see um, real declines in, in terms of crime across the board.
1: I agree. And with that empathy comes mindfulness training. And in some prisons where they do have in India, for example, where they teach Vipassana meditation. You know, they mm-hmm. take the prisoners and put them in silence. It's a guided silence for, for 10 days. And the results and transformation of these men typically is tremendous. And, and the, the temperature, you know, the emotional temperature in the prison then shifts. Yeah
3: yeah yeah it's just it's so interesting when you look at look at the foreign models I mean just the very notion of uh that the the role of the prison is rehabilitation, getting someone ready to re enter society in the United States. We do the opposite. we think the purpose of prison is to break a person down. But the truth is, most of the people we put in solitary confinement or that we brutalize in the general population, those people end up returning to our streets. Why would we want to break people down further? What we should be doing in our uh, incarceration system is building people up, giving them the skills, not just job skills, mental health skills to be successful um, in the broader world.
1: I agree. Thank you for this amazing book that you have written. Once again, the book is Unfair, published in June by Crown Books. And to learn more about the work of Adam Benferrato, please visit www.adambenferrato.com. On Facebook, Benferrato. And on Twitter, the handle is at Benferrato. Adam, thank you so much for, for, for writing this book, for being with us, for sharing your knowledge and definitely um educating a new breed of 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 lawyer in the world that is that's awesome and that is um life-altering for many or will be
3: thank you so much it was a real pleasure to chat
1: likewise here come the tunes we'll be right back
4: think is happiness like a free gift? Lisa Cypress came and has made her 1st ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life Available at no cost to everyone Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com
1: Saturday afternoons on 97.5 joy riding the coast with a global vibe pleasing your ears and inspiring your mind
2: que es los, que es los, es
4: me.
1: Joy riding the coast with me Lisa Cypress Cayman. Saturdays 2 to 5 on 97.5 kbu and radiomalibu.net
0: like what you hear on harvesting happiness talk radio subscribe to us on itunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device that's harvesting happiness talk radio on itunes
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are celebrating our day of independence in the United States with a discussion about criminal injustice, freedom, and mercy. Brian Stevenson is the executive in it. Wow. Sorry about that. One more time. Third one's a lucky charm, and then we'll roll. One, two, three. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are celebrating our state of independence with a conversation about criminal injustice, freedom, and mercy. Brian Stevenson is the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. Mr. Stevenson is a widely acclaimed public interest lawyer who has dedicated his career to helping the poor, the incarcerated, and the condemned. The EJI has won major legal challenges, including eliminating excessive and unfair sentencing, exonerating innocent death row prisoners, confronting abuse of the incarcerated and the mentally ill, and aiding children prosecuted as adults. Mr. Stevenson has successfully argued several cases in the United States Supreme Court, and recently won a historic ruling in the US Supreme Court banning mandatory life without parole sentences for all children seventeen and under as unconstitutional eji has also initiated major new anti-poverty and anti-discrimination efforts challenging the legacy of racial inequality in america Mr. Stevenson's work fighting poverty and challenging racial discrimination in the criminal justice system has won him numerous awards, including the ABA Wisdom Award for Public Service, the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship Award Prize, the Olaf Palm International Prize, and the ACLU National Medal of Liberty, the National Public Interest Lawyer of the Year Award, and the Gruber Prize for International Justice. Uh, These are just uh, some among many. Good morning, Brian. Thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, I'm delighted to be with you.
1: Well, uh, this, this is a topic that is of great interest to us, because when we talk about happiness or the pursuit of happiness, we often approach this from that annoying yellow smiley perspective. You know, the think positive thoughts and and be happy. And really, what we really mean by happiness is that state of contentment, that state of balance and equanimity. And from my perspective, and I know yours as well, that this really emanates from being able to live a life that affords some opportunity and justice.
2: Uh, That's right. I I mean, I'm absolutely persuaded that um, without Uh, the opportunity to feel like you can be your best self without the opportunity to become full and and human and healthy in the ways that all human beings uh, seek uh, you're not going to achieve uh, the peace quotient the justice quotient the happiness quotient that I think we all desire and I think one of the great challenges of where we are in this country today is that I think collectively we have retreated from some of the uh, the the commitment to those values that has long shaped us i mean the prison population is in some ways a metric for how we're uh, relating to things like freedom and we've we've gone in a very difficult and i think misguided direction the prison population in the united states in 1972 was three hundred thousand today it is two point three million uh and that Challenge has really redefined us. We now have the highest rate of incarceration in the world Uh, There are six million people on probation and parole. There are 70 million Americans with criminal arrests Which means that when they apply for a job or they try to get a loan, they're going to be disfavored And I think this era of mass incarceration and excessive punishment Has really done some pretty profound things uh, to many people in our country particularly the poor and people of color Uh, The Bureau of Justice now reports that one in three black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison. And that's a pretty shameful and shocking development. And so I think some of the policies we've adopted have actually very much undermined uh, our sense of achievement, our sense of hope, our sense of fulfillment, uh, particularly in, in poor and minority communities.
1: You have uh, written a book entitled Just Mercy, and I am in the midst of reading the book now, and I am touched by the the humanness, the humanity, and the concept of applying mercy, more mercy, within the justice system. And this really is the basis of, of your book and very much part of the foundation of the Equal Justice Initiative.
2: I think that's right. I mean, you know, the... Um... There's no question that uh, we all need to feel fairly treated, justly treated, um, humanely. We need to feel like people aren't going to abuse us and and our rights, and that's what happens when you tolerate inequality and injustice. Uh, There are so many people in our society who actually have had their hope disrupted by mistreatment and abuse. I sit down with 13 and 14-year-old kids who, when they talk to me honestly, will tell me that they don't expect to be free or alive by the time they're 21. And they say that not because of something they've read or heard. They say that because that's what they see happening in their communities. And I'm really concerned about that. And I think the way we're going to get past that is by contextualizing the challenges of so many people. I, you know, we have a huge issue of drug addiction in this country. But I don't think that drug addiction and drug dependency is a crime problem. I think it's a health problem. And if we dealt with it as a healthcare issue, I think we'd get to a closer and better. Uh, uh, we'd be we'd do better uh, in getting close to the kind of justice and and society that we want. And so yes, I, I really do think that our ability to think in a compassionate way, in a just way, is key. And one of the great problems that I think we are experiencing in this country is that for 40 years, our politicians have been preaching fear and anger. And and to be honest, when you're afraid and when you're angry, uh, your tolerance of other people is diminished. Your understanding of other people is diminished. You don't worry about uh, providing compassion and mercy. You just worry about protecting yourself. And uh, every society that has struggled with abuse and, and corruption And oppression uh, has gotten to that place because there's a narrative of fear and anger to make people comfortable doing things that are not decent, not humane, not just. And I think to a certain extent, uh, we have been compromised uh, by that uh, reality. I think, uh, you know, fearing anger has corrupted our sense of of commitment to one another, uh, uh, fair treatment of one another. And that leaves a lot of people living in the margins in great despair uh, with uh, a relationship to the larger society that is quite, quite oppressive.
1: So, Brian, let's, um, you, you had spoken about um, addiction and, and talking about it being a, a healthcare issue. And I would love for you to just recap a few seconds of that and we'll take it from there because I think you really hit the nail on the head about uh, education and treating um, mental and emotional as well as physical fitness as part of the, the problem.
2: Or the solution, rather. Sure. Okay. We've made some policy choices in this country that I think have undermined our ability to help people live healthy, productive, safe lives. I mean, much of the increase in our prison population is a function of the so-called war on drugs, which we declared in the 1970s and 80s. And that's led to this tremendous increase. It's disrupted the lives of millions of people And in many ways, it's a policy choice. We decided to deal with drug addiction and drug dependency as a crime issue rather than a health issue. Many countries, like Portugal, saw this as a health care issue, and they took a health approach. They tried to help people who were struggling with these disorders, they tried to keep people connected to their families. Uh, They provided the kind of medical assistance and social support assistance that allowed people to recover. And what's interesting to me is that it ended up being a lot cheaper and a lot more effective. Uh, We spent $6 billion on jails and prisons in 1980. Uh, Last year, we spent $80 billion. And this investment in jails and prisons has actually undermined our ability to fund education and health and human services. And there are many ways uh, where I just believe that if our focus, if our priority was uh, the health and hopefulness Uh, and engagement uh, of the communities that we serve, we'd have a very different relationship to them than if we're just waiting for them to fall down and we're exploiting uh, that falling by incarcerating and uh, condemning uh, people. About 50% of the people in jails and prisons suffer from mental illness. About 20% uh, suffer from acute mental illness. And instead of dealing with mental disability as a disability that requires an intervention that's uh, around health and recovery, uh, we punish people. We put them in jails and prisons, sometimes for decades, because uh, we haven't created alternatives. And so a healthier orientation uh, to the larger society is part of what I think um, we would get to if we were a little more compassionate, if we were a little more merciful, and if we were more committed to justice.
1: I Uh, A a great deal of my time is spent in addiction and trauma recovery, and I have had firsthand experience of of what you just described. We have many young adults in our programs that come through the court system. Fortunately, the court will remand them to a a long-term recovery program, and we see incredible progress and stride and healing in these young men and women that are just given the opportunity to to heal to learn how to be fit mentally physically emotionally and spiritually
2: and this gives me hope yeah, absolutely no that's the exciting thing is that we actually have the ability to help people recover i mean we can uh, do things like rehabilitate and correct and inspire and motivate but it requires a different relationship than the relationship Uh, that we have institutionalized uh, through our criminal justice system. I mean, the tragedy is that we've got a whole uh, generation of children, in poor and minority communities in particular, that are born into violent families. They live in violent neighborhoods, they go to violent schools, they're chased by violent gangs, and by the time these kids are five and six years of age, they are suffering from a kind of trauma, a, a, a traumatic stress disorder. And we want to threaten them when they get to school with certain kinds of behavioral expectations that if they don't meet, we'll punish them some more, which aggravates uh, that stressed condition. And if we're going to change that, we're going to have to treat this trauma as a threshold issue. We're going to have to create a healthcare portal for these children to walk through before they can learn the way we want them uh, to learn. And I'm excited because we know how to do that. We can actually help uh, the next generation of children recover and do better as parents, and as students, and as workers, and as citizens, but it means we've got to care about them enough to help them get well, and not just throw them away uh, by creating carceral policies uh, that make life imprisonment without parole the default for what you do uh, with a disabled, traumatized young person living in a violent environment.
1: That is the byproduct of our system itself, which we, we can talk more about this. We're going to go to a break in a minute. When we come back, I do want to talk about what our legal, the American legal system says about the soul of our country, that says uh, about the temple of where we are at. Because uh, when I talk with these young men and women, and I just had this conversation with a young guy last week, we were talking about, he's in his mid-20s, and he said, you know, if I had money and I had come from a more affluent background, I wouldn't have gone to jail. And I think he's right. You know, based upon many of the circumstances that I've witnessed in these programs, that if somebody is a poor or minority and gets into trouble and gets into the system, it's very hard for them to get out.
2: Lisa, I think we have a system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. I don't think there's any question that wealth, more than culpability, uh, shapes outcomes in our system. And that's a very serious problem that we have to address.
1: And I would like to address it in in our conversation when we come back from the break. And I want to let our listeners know the book is Just Mercy by Bryan Stevenson. You can learn more about the book by going to, is there a book website, Bryan? I don't see one here.
2: If you go to our website at uh, EJI.org, there is a book website that you can access there.
1: Wonderful. And on Facebook, to connect, you may go to Equal Justice Initiative. And on Twitter, it's at EJI underscore org. We're gonna to go to a break and when we come back, we are going to carry on the conversation about how mercy, forgiveness, and caring may actually change the face of our justice system. Here come the tunes, we'll be right back.
0: like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa cypress Cayman will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details.
4: Be a part of the grateful good. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day.
0: I feel good I knew that I wouldn't I feel good I knew that
1: I wouldn't So good. So good. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast and share it. Why? Because sharing is caring and it's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7 on iTunes and other platforms. And we're talking about the state of independence in America as it relates to the criminal justice system or injustice system, if you will, including why and how mercy plays a role in how we treat the incarcerated today. And with me in the studio is Brian Stevenson. He is the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. He's also the author of a wonderful wonderful book entitled Just Mercy. Brian, prior to the break we were talking about the differences um, in financial and social status to somebody who is incarcerated. And you said something very, very um, poignant that I would love for you to repeat about um, if you have money um, and you're guilty, you do better than someone who who does not have money and is not guilty.
2: No, I think that's right. And it's not a happy thing for me to to say, but my time in this system has absolutely reinforced this, this belief that I have that our system does treat you better. If you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent, uh, wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. And in this era of excessive punishment and mass incarceration, that's especially uh, problematic because for the poor and for people who don't have the resources uh, to present themselves as something other than the crime for which they have been accused, uh, you too often uh, come into our system with a presumption of guilt. I mean, one of the great challenges that we have is that because we've had so much fear and anger being peddled uh, by politicians and elected officials, uh, we're quite willing to believe the worst things about the people uh, who are accused of crimes. And that just sets up a dynamic where you're going to have a lot of wrongful convictions. I've had the privilege of representing people who we were able to exonerate, but it's troubling to me that there probably have never been more innocent people in jails and prisons in this country than there are right now. Uh, for, uh, in the death penalty context, even, we've now had 154 people who were exonerated after being proved innocent. That means for every nine people who've been executed, we've now identified one innocent person on death row, which is a pretty shocking uh, rate of error. And yet we persist uh, with that punishment because we haven't sensitized ourselves to the burden that is created uh, when uh, you tolerate that kind of unreliability. And I think a lot of that has to do with with the way we just think about ourselves, the way we think about our identity. I am persuaded uh, that each of us is more than the worst thing that we've ever done. I think that for uh, every listener, I think it for the people in jails and prisons, I think that for everyone – I think if someone tells a lie, they're not just a liar. If they take something that doesn't belong to them, they're not just a thief. I think even if you kill someone, you're not just a killer. And worrying about and discovering and relating to and thinking about all the other things we are after we've made a mistake, after we've made a misjudgment, is the way we get to a healthier, uh, more humane, more just place. It's what makes mercy so essential. It's what makes compassion uh, so critical. And we can't expect compassion and mercy if we don't offer it to the people around us. And we've been allowed in this country uh, to not offer it to anyone uh, for too long. And the consequence of that uh, is uh, the highest rate of incarceration in the world and a lot of pain and anguish in jails and prisons throughout this, throughout this country.
1: And, uh- I would also say the economic pressure that this that this puts on the country itself to finance all of this let's not help people grow let's just throw them in jail and warehouse them
2: does any make, sense it, right you know we've actually had to take money from education and health and human services to fund uh this growing prison industrial complex uh, and in some ways it's it's even worse than it appears because now There are private prison industries uh, that are profiting from these high rates of incarceration. And so they're actually spending money in legislatures and in political uh, arenas to make sure that we don't reform the system because their profit depends on continued growth. More people in jails and prisons, even if those people don't need to be there uh, to protect public safety, they've got a financial incentive uh, to keep them there. And it's not just the prison builders, it's all the collateral industries that have developed along it, uh, along the line, phone providers and healthcare providers and uh, vendors selling uh, goods and supplies. And uh, never in our history have we had an economic engine uh, motivated to keep the prison population high, uh, motivated to find new ways to criminalize more conduct uh, than what we have uh, today. And the costs are enormous, both financial but also social and emotional. We've had a 20% increase in the number of women sent to prison in the last, excuse me, a 640% increase in the number of women uh, sent to jails and prisons over the last 20 years. 70% of these women are single parents with minor children. And when they go to jails and prisons, their children are scattered and displaced uh, and uh, made to be uh, wards of the state uh, and other agencies at great cost, but also uh, you're much more likely to go to jail or prison if you're the child of an incarcerated parent. And so the costs of this are actually quite dramatic and quite severe, uh, which is why we've been pushing so hard for a new relationship uh, to dealing with public safety in a more healthy, hopeful, and engaged way.
1: Um, your book, Just Mercy, argues for compassion in the pursuit of justice. And we've just touched upon this. What, what exactly does it mean in terms of building a more compassionate justice system?
2: Well, I think it means helping people recover when they've fallen down. I, 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 you know, We've sort of given up on rehabilitation and correction in this country. And I think that's a shame because we have the ability, we have the knowledge and the resources and the capacity uh, to help people recover. When they get in economic distress and they make a mistake, uh, or when they're in an abusive relationship and they react violently, or when they're dealing with uh, mental health disorders that manifest themselves in illegal or criminal misconduct, um, it's only when we ignore the context, the narrative behind these acts, that we are comfortable uh, putting people in prison for as long as we put them in prison for. We've got people serving life without parole sentences for simple drug possession because we adopted mandatory sentencing schemes and three strikes laws. uh, I've represented people who are doing life in prison for stealing a bicycle or a piece of pizza or a hammer from a hardware store. Uh, And that kind of sentencing reveals an absence of compassion, mercy and understanding that can only be defended when we don't care about the narrative behind the act, the context behind the act. And so that's partly what I'm trying to do with this book, is to get people closer to these stories, to these realities. I think if most people saw what I see on a regular basis, they would demand change. They wouldn't feel comfortable with the kind of cruel and excessive punishments that uh, I've seen imposed. Uh, You know, children, for example, we have 15 states with no minimum age for trying a child as an adult. Uh, That means that kids that are 10 and 11 sometimes face long-term prison sentences. There are 10,000 children at any given moment Uh, in adult jails and prisons, where they're at great risk of sexual assault or abuse. Uh, We have some 250,000 people serving prison sentences for decades for crimes they committed as children. And I don't think most of us uh, would ever expect uh, that our children could be properly punished in that way. And yet this narrative, this fear and anger has allowed us to see some children as not children. And I think when any country begins to believe that Uh, All children are not children that when they lose the idea the the commitment to the notion that all children are children We become vulnerable we become at risk And so this need for mercy this need for compassion this need for balance is Partly what I'm arguing is critical if we're going to recover uh, From this era that has really done some devastation to 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 many people in many communities this uh, growing universe of people who've been condemned uh, by their worst act, who've been burdened uh, by this identity that we've imposed on them it, it is really quite tragic. And I don't think any of us can be free uh, until we uh, liberate ourselves from that way of thinking about each other.
1: I agree. And, and, and I also think that the, the concept of mercy starts with the self. And if you have a, a nation of of individuals who are not particularly merciful towards themselves to begin with, it is impossible to extend that fellowship to another.
2: No, I think uh, as as a society, collectively, we've become unhealthy in ways that makes it hard for us to extend the mercy and compassion that we seek for ourselves to others. I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, I do think that's what fear and anger does. I think it disrupts your sense of self in ways where you're no longer doing the things that make you strong and hopeful. Uh, You know, when I look at our system of justice, I think it's profoundly, you know, there's a profound absence of hope and that hopelessness sets you up for a range of problems uh, and you become distrustful and you become disbelieving about what you can achieve and what others can achieve. And I think part of that is evident in the way we have sentenced uh, people in our system. So I think we actually have to, you know, do some things. I think we have to get proximate. I think we have to get closer to the problems so we understand them better. Uh, We don't miss the nuances and the details because we're trying to make policies from a distant uh, distance. I also think we have to change the narrative about what's possible. I've met people who've done some terrible things, who've recovered from those terrible things and are now leading amazing lives. And that's an affirming, hopeful, exciting thing to see. Uh, But we've got to understand just how powerful that is. And then I think we have to protect our hope. I really do believe we have to be willing to believe things we haven't seen about the human condition, believe that we can be a society less burdened by racism and bigotry, believe we can confront and overcome the implicit bias that most of us have inherited as a result of our history of racial inequality, believe that we can help people who are disabled by mental illness recover and live productive, healthy lives. And finally, I believe that we have to be willing to do uncomfortable things, forgiving another human being. Showing compassion and mercy before you're given compassion and mercy can be uncomfortable. It can seem risky. It can seem a little, um, uh, you know, overwhelming. But that's the way we develop strong relationships with one another. That's the way we get to a place uh, of justice and fairness and equality. And that has to be the kind of orientation we bring to these challenges that have emerged in the last 50 years.
1: Well, thank you for your work, Brian Stevenson. It is truly inspiring. The book is Just Mercy. To learn more, please visit www.eji.org. On Facebook, the page is Equal Justice Initiative. And on Twitter, the handle is at EJI underscore org. And here are a couple of thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Brian Stevenson and Adam Benferrato, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. And of course mercy as you celebrate your state of independence until next time remember happiness is an inside job happiness is your inside job and thanks to our producers who make us shine each and every week we appreciate you
0: thanks for joining us on harvesting happiness talk radio with lisa cypress cayman join us every wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 central time here on toginet radio Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week, Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at Hashtag Then join us again next week at this same time on the Toginet Radio Network.